Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. Um, last week, we started a new series called RC Beauty. And um, if I can ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. In the first service, when I asked people to do that, there was dead silent. And I was like, people have either not brought their Bibles to church or everyone's Bible is on their device. I didn't hear any pages turning. So I trust you have a Bible with you. Um, as mentioned, we, we're going to be looking at the, the seven letters that were written to the churches in Asia Minor. Uh, the Apostle John was banished to the island of Patmos, and there he experienced the Lord in an amazing way. And Jesus spoke to him, and he wrote down these letters which needed to be delivered to the churches. And Asia Minor today is, is modern Turkey, and that's where it happened. And these letters were written specifically to the seven churches, but they also do pertain to us today. And I, I, want, to, I want to say that to you because it's important that we don't neglect that part of the Bible, but it, it is important that we, we take to heart what was said there. Yes, there were very specific things happening in the churches at that time, and Jesus addressed them. But if we put all seven letters together, we can take them as a church and to be encouraged. Now, when I, I got born again, when I was about 13, 14 years old, and I started going to church, and my introduction to Revelation was a sermon that I heard on one Sunday night. I went to church by myself. I didn't have my family with me, and there were about 20, 25 people at the service. And then one of the elderly ladies uh, who was a leader in the church, she got up and she held up a book and she showed it to the congregation. And on it, it said, the mark of the beast. And I was like, whoa. So just remember, I was, I had just been saved. My parents went with me. And then she went on to speak about the number 666 and how we need to be careful that this, uh, <clears throat> this thing is going to happen. You know, people are going to walk around with barcodes on their wrists. I mean, I was so petrified that after that, I didn't want to buy anything with a barcode on. I'm like, I don't want to be part of this, this thing. I, I don't want to go to hell because I scanned a barcode. So that was my introduction to the book of Revelation. And like, I was like, I'm not reading this book. You know, I never really got to it. But, you know, that's not what the book of Revelation is about. The book of Revelation is a book of hope. It's a book that reveals the full identity of Jesus Christ. Yes, it does warn us and it does speak about what is going to happen, but primarily it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as we started the sermon series last week and, and in my preparation for today, I've just realized how uh, Pierre mentioned last week that Jesus sees beauty. When I read Revelation now, I'm reminded of the church being the bride of Christ. He's our bridegroom. And he sees beauty in us. If you're married, when you think of your spouse, she or he is your best friend. You, you're passionately in love. You know, there, there's a, a, an intimate relationship there. And this is how Jesus responds to the church. And this is how we should respond to Jesus. As he sees beauty in us, we see a magnificent beauty 
in Jesus. So this is a book of hope. And if you have had bad experiences with the book of Revelation or you've watched the series Left Behind, I haven't seen it, but all that I, the picture I get in my mind with this series is just people disappearing in clothes, falling down to, to the floor. But it, that's not what the book of Revelation is about. Last week, Pierre preached on the letter to Ephesus, and his theme was keep your righteousness, but return to your first love. And Jesus was addressing that the church had moved away from that very thing that they started with, the, 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 the intimacy of Jesus. He shared with us that there's a structure to each letter that is written. It starts off with a counselor speaking, who is Jesus. Then there's a commendation. There's a criticism and a correction, and then it ends with a conqueror's promise. Jesus promises something. And today I'm going to be preaching on the letter to Smyrna, and my theme is remain faithful in suffering. I would just like to thank the team for giving me this portion of scripture. <laughs> the suffering church. I said, very, I said yes to it very quickly. I was like, yes, I'll do it. And the Lord often works very much in my personal life leading up to the Sunday on the matter that I have to preach on. So thank you for that team. But one of the first things I discovered in this letter to Smyrna is that there's no criticism or correction in this portion of Scripture. I think there are two times, there are two of the letters that don't have any criticism or correction. And when I realized this, I'm like, okay, Lord, please speak to me. You, there's something special here. Something happened at the church of Smyrna that did not receive your criticism. And my encouragement to you today is please listen with open ears. Please listen with an open heart. There's going to be a, a bit of history here this morning, so please don't fade away on me. I know that you all love history and you all took history as your matric subject. My daughter's busy choosing her grade 10 subjects and she has to choose between history and geography. And I said, just take history, it's easy marks. You can just study it and, and reproduce. Anyway, I thought it was easy marks. And um, so there's something special that happened in the church of Smyrna. And would you, as I share this morning, and as I describe a bit of the history, would you try and position yourself back in that time? Try and think of being a part of that church and, and what it must have felt like. Let's read together. Revelation 2, 8 to 11. To the church in Smyrna. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now it's important that we understand what was happening at that time. What was the setting? That very specific group of people, what did they get out of the letter that was written to them? And I spent a lot of my time this week walking 
and just thinking about what, what a life these Christians must have lived in Smyrna. A little bit about the city Smyrna. It was about 40 kilometers north of Ephesus. It was nicknamed the Port of Asia because it had an excellent harbor. So it was a commercial center. There was a lot of activity happening. It was a central point in that, that area of the world. It prospered into the one, one of the greatest cities at that time. It was known for its many temples and splendid buildings. And the world referred to it as one of the most beautiful cities in the world. It reminds me a bit about uh, Cape Town or Somerset West. Now, Smyrna is still there today. In Turkey, it's known as Izmir. It's the third largest city in Turkey and also exports many valuable items to the world. And in my reading, I discovered that Smyrna is the only city that is still standing from the cities that the letters were sent to. The church is still um, alive in, in that city. And apparently one third of the population are Christian in the city of Smyrna. If I look at the church in Smyrna, not much is known about the church. There's no other place in the Bible where we read about this church. No letters, no, no other writings are addressed to it. We don't read about it in the book of Acts. But we can assume that it was founded by the Apostle Paul in the three years that he spent in Ephesus, um, when from Ephesus the gospel went out into Asia Minor. As I mentioned, the church was known as the suffering or the persecuted church. And they struggled against two groups of people. The first group of people was a Jewish population that were strongly opposed to Christianity. And the second group was a non-Jewish population that was very loyal to Rome. And they supported emperor worship. So that environment that the church was in, it was quite volatile. And it was the right environment for a place of suffering and persecution. It was inevitable. If you look at the word Smyrna for that city, it comes from the word myrrh. Myrrh was a substance that was taken from a thorny tree. And it was used to make perfume. But it was also used to... Uh, anoint bodies once the person had died. In Matthew 2, we read about how the wise men brought gifts to Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In John 19, after Jesus was, was crucified and after he died, they anointed his body with myrrh. So what started off as a perfume was also associated with death. So the church that is receiving this letter is placed in a city which is associated with death. Now the fragrance that myrrh gave off would only be released once the, the branches were crushed of that plant or that tree. So can you picture them? They wanted to get that fragrance and that perfume, but they had to crush the thorny tree in, in order to do that. And this is very symbolic of the church in Smyrna. They released this incredible aroma of Jesus Christ. They displayed him well, but in order for that to happen, they were crushed. And we're going to read a bit about that today. In verse 8, it says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and who came to life. Now, as we read through the letters, 
That first little portion, which refers back to the counselor, who is Jesus, John has already listed everything in chapter 1. He speaks about Jesus having feet of bronze and this the sword that is coming out of his mouth. It also refers to Jesus as being the first and the last. Now, Jesus is not dumb, okay? There's a reason why he used that description and aligned it with the church of Smyrna. There's a reason why he's described himself as the first and the last, the one who died and the one who is now alive. And we're going to be discovering that as we learn more about the church. Jesus, he speaks to this church and he gives them three encouragements. And this is what I want to encourage us with today. The first of all, he says, I know. Secondly, he says, do not fear. And thirdly, be faithful. In verse 9, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The tribulation that the Christians were facing was because that they did not worship the emperor as a god. Because the Christians didn't worship the emperor as a god, they were seen as atheists. They were seen as traitors and tribulation and persecution came. Now you might just think, okay, that's fine, you can just reject it. But because they didn't worship the emperor, they couldn't vote, they couldn't own property, and they weren't allowed to trade in the market. What life is that? I mean, what can I do with my life except in some part of those areas? They refused to worship at the pagan temples, and this was a money-making institution at that time. So where Christianity grew, people going to these pagan temples reduced, and then people were upset because they weren't making money. So there was some tribulation there. The word poverty that is used in this portion, there are two Greek words that speak about poverty. This one refers to poverty as extreme poverty. It means you have absolutely nothing. Complete destitution. Can you see how this picture is forming? Can you imagine us being the church of Smyrna and we are all completely destituted? We are incredibly, extremely poor. Most of the Christians were slaves because they couldn't trade at the market. They weren't just slaves. They were abused slaves. They weren't given money. They were maybe given food. And those Christians who did own stuff, they were most probably robbed and plundered and deprived of everything that they had. That's not a fun environment to, to live. The word slander, the Roman subjects were expected to offer up sacrifices to Caesar as God. Now the Jews received an exception they were allowed to honor the Roman officials as rulers and not as gods. The reason Rome did this, I think, was to make a way for the Jews and the Romans to coexist. But over time, this distinction between their offering incense to Caesar and them worshiping the God of the Old Testament became a very bit blurry. You know? And I think it got to a point where 
the way that they worshipped God and Caesar were very much the same. So the Jews then started to point their finger at the Christians because the Christians were not responding in that way in worshipping the emperor. And they were saying, hey, look at these guys, these atheists. We need to uh, respond to this, Romans. You need to lay down the, the law here. And Jesus does respond quite harshly. He refers to them as the synagogue of Satan. Jesus wasn't anti-Semitic. He he was a a Jew. And John was a Jew who wrote the the letter. He was anti-sin. Because these Jewish population were not doing the work of God. They were doing the work of the devil. And that's why Jesus responded to them in that way. Tribulation, poverty, slander. You know, can you imagine them having their membership course for church? Right, guys, we just would like to share our three values with you. Devotion, discipleship, and death. Would you like to sign up for our church? It's in extreme conditions. Are, Are you feeling it? Can you imagine the lives that they lived? How does Jesus respond? He says, I know. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know your slander. Jesus was referred to as the first and the last. It wasn't just anybody known. When you go through difficult times, it's quite nice to speak to someone and to just get that load off your chest and say, listen, things are tough. And, and just the matter that you, matter of fact that you've been able to share this with someone, you feel better. But we've got somebody who actually knows how why, and why we feel the way we feel because of what we're going through. Jesus knows. He is the first and the last. He, he came before the beginning of time. He will be there at the end of time. Jesus was there before your, your trials and difficult moments started. He will be there when he judges us one day. Jesus experienced everything that we experienced. There was nothing that Jesus didn't experience that we experience. It goes on to say that he, he went from being dead to alive. That's quite a paradox. How can the God who is transcends time and space and creation, how can he die? That, that, is, that doesn't make sense. But he came to earth as a man and he endured the trials, the poverty, the slander, and he died. He made a way for us. He gave us hope in, in a hopeless situation. And we can see that, that we refers to him as the first and the last. He was dead and alive. He, that all happened when he was here on earth. And Jesus brings hope to our situations here as we live on earth. We can have hope knowing that Jesus wants to be with us. And, he, and yes, he works through our lives in, in these moments. But he knows. God knows the hardship and the suffering that his people endure. He's not ignorant of your situation. How many of you have felt that, geez, where is God in this? Lord, stock seal alien. That's the only Afrikaans you'll get from me today. But there are times where you just think, God, 
let alone you knowing what I'm going through, you, it just doesn't feel like you are here. God knows. In the midst of affliction, it may feel like God has forgotten about you. Folks, can I encourage you today? He knows. He knows. He knows the difficulty that we face. He knows your current circumstances. He knows what you're trusting him for. In verse 9, this is an amazing, amazing picture. It speaks about the tribulation and the poverty and the slander. But in, in brackets, there are four words. And Jesus says, but you are rich. What? You are rich? He was referred to this small, weak, poor church as rich. When we read through the letters to the churches in Revelation, most of these weak and small churches are commended the most. While the rich, confident, and impressive churches receive the least commendation. We should not judge a church by the world's standards. I was listening to a podcast this week and the preacher was saying, we tend to measure success in, in a church by, with three Bs. Buildings, budgets, and bodies. You know, how many bodies are there in your church? You're a successful church if you've broken the 800 mark. That you have a wonderful building and that your budget is just amazing. Now, folks, please, I'm not saying that the small, poorer churches have all got it together and the larger churches with buildings have got it all wrong. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is when I got to this moment in my preparation this week, I closed my book, went for a walk, and I'm like, Lord, how do you see every nation Somerset West? What do you look at when you look at our church? I don't think Jesus worries about the building we're in. Or what the finances are like. Yes, the finances help us do the work, but I think he looks at faithfulness. He looks at steadfastness. Are we displaying that? Is that the Rome that we give up as a church? And so from the outside, this church in Smyrna did not look impressive. It's like, you know, when you, whatever, let's say my family and I, we moved to another town and we've got to find a church, you kind of move from church to church to try and find your community of people. As mentioned uh, earlier, you know, I'm sure the membership class must have been pretty intense. I was like, I don't know if I would join that church, you know. I'm going to try to save myself. But would, would Jesus, when he looked at the church, he saw faithfulness, he, he saw steadfastness. He referred to them as rich. He saw them as beautiful. So Jesus responded by saying, I know. Secondly, he said, do not fear. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. They had reason to be afraid. They didn't just go through difficult moments. They were thrown into coliseums with wild animals. When was the last time you tried to run away from a lion? They were boiled in pots of oil. They were tortured. They were crucified. They were put into prison. They had reason to fear. I would have been afraid. They had been impoverished by their tribulation. 
and now they were going to be imprisoned. They were about to receive more persecution. Come on, that's crazy. So, I, again, I went into my mind, I'm like, can you imagine being at church that Sunday or Saturday when they said, guys, we've received a letter from the Apostle John and the letter's from Jesus. Please don't miss church on Sunday because we're going to read it. And, you know, you could, you, I can imagine they were sitting there just waiting to hear Jesus going to deliver us from this. You know, I'm the first and the last. I was dead and alive. Yes, Jesus. You know, I know your tribulation and your slander and poverty. Yes, you see us as rich, Jesus. That's amazing. And then verse 10, do not fear. And everyone's like, here it comes. Here it comes. Because I've delivered you from your tribulation. No, he says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. There's more coming? No. I'm leaving this church. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. So that you may be tested. For 10 days. The church had every human reason to collapse. They had every reason to say, I quit. I, I, I can't do this anymore. Who needs this religion? I'll go join the synagogue of Satan and burn incense to the emperor. But no, they, they stuck to their guns. The Smyrna church was clear in the face of fear. They just leaned all the more on Jesus and they never lost their first hope. I think that's one of the things that they received from the church of Ephesus. So the letter to the Ephesus says, you've lost that very first thing that you had. I think when they went to Smyrna, the first thing that the church picked up was that incredible love for Jesus that the Ephesus church had. And that's what kept them so committed to, to the cause. Isn't that incredible? The Bible talks about 10 days. Now, this can be symbolic of a set time. It's not an everlasting tribulation. Although we may suffer greatly, the length of our tribulation will be short compared to the promise of eternal life. Now, as I prepared and I read some commentaries, some commentators of this portion of scripture, they, they connect this 10 days to 10 Roman emperors that ruled in that time from AD 100 to AD 313. These 10 emperors launched a massive attack against the Christians. And they reckon that approximately 5 million Christians were killed during that time. But Jesus says, your tribulation, your persecution is temporary. Don't look to this world. And that was 250 years plus, 10 days. The time that we spend with the Lord in eternity will seem like 10 days with the tribulation that we face here on earth. Jesus says, do not be afraid. I've been afraid. I was afraid this week. I was presented with a trial and Blood pressure up, cortisol levers through, through the roof, adrenaline pumping, you know. What, you know, on paper, the situation did not look good. And I was like, Lord, I'm afraid. 
what am I going to do? And I had to just remind myself that Jesus knows and he's, he's told me to not be afraid. And I know that I will be afraid if I don't know who Jesus is in my life. And then thirdly, Jesus says, be faithful. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Faithfulness doesn't mean that we suppress our feelings. Here are some lyrics to a song. The cold never bothered me anyway. It doesn't mean you suppress your feelings. Like, yes, things are bad, but, you know, tribulation doesn't bother me anyway. I can, I can manage this. Faithfulness means that we believe the promises of God. Do, do you, this book is absolutely true about everything. But we have to believe that it is true. We have to read our Bibles as if our lives depend upon it because it does. When we suffer, we are tempted to doubt God. We tend to shipwreck our faith because our lives have been shipwrecked. The church in Smyrna had set death as their breaking point. Can you imagine that? Be faithful unto death. I think the guys had made a commitment, all right? What's the greatest tribulation we could face here on earth? Is it to die? Are we willing to do that? Yes, we're willing to do it. So anything that happened up until that point, they were happy to engage in. I'm not saying it was easy, but I think they had made a conscious decision to actually sit and think, what is that breaking point? Is there a point in your life or my life where we become unfaithful or where we become fearful or where we we leave Jesus. Jesus promises a glorious reward. He talks about the crown of life. And when we lay our lives down for Jesus, we will one day inherit a life of eternity. So Jesus says, be faithful through tribulation. And in thinking through this, this week, I read in James 1, 2 to 4, a well-known portion, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So I read this after knowing what the church in Smyrna went through. And I'm like, okay, if these guys read this, count it all joy when you go through trials. How can I be joyful when I'm looking death in the eyes? I think what Paul is trying to say is when we understand that we grow and we persevere when we go through difficult times, we become more like Jesus. Isn't that what our prayer is? How many of you have prayed, Lord Jesus, I want to become more like you? I want to be more Christ-like. I have. How does Jesus make us become more Christ-like? When we face difficult moments in our life. How do we respond to that? I found my, my prayers were changing this week. I wasn't praying so much about, Lord, take this away from me. Change my circumstance. Please, Lord, you know I can't take more of this. I'm done. No. I, I started to just say, okay, Lord, I'm taking my eyes off my circumstance. I'm going to look to you because I know that you are certain. I'm certain that you love me. And I'm certain that you want to do a deep work in my life. And that gives me confidence and that, that, that makes me feel a whole lot better. I don't, 
I can't determine what's going to happen in my life. As I said, I've faced really tough moments in my life with, with our family, but I know they're going to be more tough moments. But I can remain certain knowing that Jesus loves me. He knows. And he wants to do a deep work in my life. So I will keep my eyes focused on him. And I'm not saying that we should become the devil's punching bag. Not at all. Jesus actually says that the devil's going to put you in prison. And there are are moments where we can respond with the the weapons of our warfare. And we can resist the enemy. And we we can stop his work. But despite that, Jesus still works through our lives even when the enemy attacks us. He still uses those moments to work in us. Jesus knows. He has said to us, do not fear and to remain faithful. In verse 11, it ends by saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The Apostle Paul, he tells us that in the future we will become But until then, we must overcome. We will become everything that God has created us to be one day. But while we are here, we need to be overcomers. We need to be able to embrace the circumstances of our life with the the strength and the grace that Jesus has given to us. And through all of that, it deepens our relationship with God and strengthens our trust in him. It talks about the second death here. I think that the Christians in the church of Smyrna, they feared the second death more than the first death. We will all die one day. That's a given. But we will also all be resurrected, whether you've received Jesus or not. Those who've received what Christ has done for them in that day of resurrection, they they will be in eternity with God. They won't have to face the second death. The second death is is that day of judgment where those who haven't received what Christ has done for them stand before God and unfortunately will be in eternal separation from God. That is the second death. And I believe that the Christians in Smyrna said, hey, physical death is fine. I'll die any day. But don't let me be separated from my God. There is an eternal hope. That speaks about a hope for eternity for us as believers. I'd like to conclude this message with an account of a story from one of the bishops or pastors of the church at the time. His name was Polycarp, and he died a martyr's death. Um, but I'm going to read it to you just so that you can, again, it's, it's written in a way where you can get an idea of what happened at that time. Polycarp was killed in about 155 AD, about 50 years or so after the writing of this letter. In a letter addressed by the church at Smyrna to the churches in the Christian world, it's related that Jews joined with heathen in clamoring that Polycarp should be cast to the lions or burned alive. And the Jews were foremost in bringing logs for the pile and in the endeavor to prevent the remains of the martyr from being delivered to his Christian friends for burial. It was the time of the public games. The city was crowded and the crowds were excited. Isn't isn't that mad? They were excited. 
Suddenly, the shout went up, away with the atheists. Let Polycarp be searched. No doubt Polycarp could have escaped, but already he had a dream in which he saw the pillow under his head burning with fire, and he had awakened to tell his disciples, I must be burned alive. His whereabouts were betrayed to the persecutors by a little slave girl who collapsed under torture, and they came to arrest him. Not even the soldier captain wished to see Polycarp die. On the brief journey to the city, he pled with the old man. He said, what harm is it to say that Caesar is Lord and to sacrifice and save your life? But Polycarp was adamant that for him only Jesus Christ was Lord. He entered the arena. The proconsul gave him the choice of cursing the name of Christ and making sacrifice to Caesar or death. Eighty and six years have I served him, he said. And he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul threatened him with burning. Polycarp replied, you threaten me with a fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched? For you do not know the fire which awaits the wicked in judgment to come and in everlasting punishment. Why are you waiting? Come do what you will. And he remained unmovable. So the crowds came flocking with their sticks. And the Jews, even although they were breaking the Sabbath law by carrying such burdens, were foremost in the clamor and bringing wood for the fire. They were going to bind him to the stake. Leave me as I am, he said. For he who gives me power to endure the fire will grant me to remain in the flames unmoved. Even without the security you will give by binding So they left him loosely in the flames, and there he died for Christ. This is the culmination of the persecution of this little church. So he says, I know about you. I know your tribulation and the slander against you. And some historians write, and they believe that after Polycarp's death, that persecution and tribulation against the Christians started to diminish. There's also a piece that I wrote that when they lit the the fire around him, there was a wind that blew around him and the flames couldn't get to him. So the soldier had to stab him with the sword and he bled to death. But again, symbolic, his blood dripped onto the fire. Symbolic of the, the blood of the saints that put out the fire of persecution. Isn't that an incredible, powerful story? Jesus is the head of this church. We say that often. And we, in in, uh, starting to preach on this sermon series, I See Beauty, we've just seen how God has providentially and prophetically just led us to this moment. He's speaking to us as a church. We did a series on standing ground, and yes, persecution and trials, yes, I'm going to stand, but Now we're addressing it again. Our our country is going through continuous moments of the moments of fear, xenophobia, crime. You know, we're anxious, but we need to, to remind ourselves that Jesus knows. And Jesus wants us to respond in a way that the church in Smyrna responded that we would not be afraid that we would remain faithful, that we would remain steadfast, that we would pursue Jesus with everything that's within us because then we know that he knows 
what we are going through in our lives. Jesus is saying to you today, I know, do not fear and remain faithful.